Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about equity, inclusion and diversity in financial services. And on the podcast, we seek to shine a light on positive progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer lots of ideas to help drive change. And we wanted a really special start to Series 14. So in August, I caught up with two of the greats in the technology industry, Russ Shaw, CBE, and Dr. Sue Black, OBE. In this special episode, I explore with each of them where we must focus in order to fill the tech skills gaps, where they see the potential and the pitfalls. And we talk about allyship and even how to address the realities of toxic cultures. And we get to learn so much more about where they are focusing their time to drive greater diversity, equity, and inclusion in the technology industry. So our first interview is with Russ Shaw, the founder of Tech London Advocates and Global Tech Advocates. He originally founded Tech London Advocates in 2013 to ensure an independent voice of the technology community was really heard, but with a particular focus on the private sector. Since then, he has been championing London as a global tech hub and campaigning to address some of the biggest challenges facing tech companies in the UK. In 2015, he founded Global Tech Advocates, now present in more than 27 hubs around the world with more than 30,000 members and growing. In 2019, he launched the inaugural GTA Festival, taking place in China and bringing the international network together for the very first time. He is a founding partner of London Tech Week, a London Tech Ambassador for the Mayor of London, and an advisory member for Founders for Schools and the Government's Digital Skills Partnership. Unsurprisingly, he was awarded a CBE in the Queen's New Year's Honours List in 2021 for services to technology and to businesses in London. So Russ, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Lovely to see you, Jill. I'm intrigued. You know, what's it you're focused on right now? There are three key areas that we as a global tech community are focused on. First and foremost is around tech for net zero, um, the planet's burning, and we know that we need to do much more to drive a sustainability and circular economy agenda. Second is around emerging technologies, from blockchain to quantum to the the metaverse to uh, robotics. There's so much going on in terms of emerging tech and how to help people understand where it's all going. And then third, and I know this is where we're going to talk more specifically is around uh, diversity and inclusion. It's one of the key priorities for us as a community. And we've talked before at many, many events about you know, the need to bring talent into the tech industry. And, and certainly I talk about a lot in the, in the field of, of financial services. But let's start with women, but we are going to go much, much further. The diversity, equity and inclusion conversation, as all our listeners knows, extends it right the way across the community. But if we could perhaps sort of talk about the the role of women and also uh, your views on the importance of focusing on returners. Yes. First and foremost, the role of women in the technology sector is vital and it's vital for our future success. You know, I often say to to folks, look, a sector that's 80% white men is just not going to be sustainable in the longer term. We're not going to build the world leading products and services that we need for the technology sector. And I do spend a fair bit of my time. We have in our community, we have a variety of working groups. Our two largest groups are our women in tech and our black women in tech groups. And I spend a lot of time with those leads, really trying to understand what are the specific issues? How do we support from a grassroots point of view, what's going on to help women and Black women to 
you know, build careers in the tech sector? How do we get behind female founders to make sure that they're getting the investments that they need to go into their startups and scale up? So that to me is critical. The frustration as, as you and I have spoken about is the needle is just not moving fast enough. And, you know, the latest Atomico report is you know, something like 2% of all founders are, are women. And then I think if you drill down on that, I think it's 0.2 or 0.3% are black women. So, you know, as we say in America, Houston, we have a problem. How do we fix this? Um, I think the good news is the awareness levels and people are really trying to commit to fixing the issue, but it's just not moving fast enough. And I'm also seeing frustration build that we're not moving that needle as quickly as we like. I, I feel that way too. We could be moving much faster in this space. And what advice would you give the listeners to think about uh, where to focus their attention? Because there's obviously so much that can be done. And I know you've been sort of through the global tech advocates and through the London tech advocates is really thinking about um, community grassroots approaches. My message to women, to black women, to people with disabilities, to people from the LGBTQ community is bring the ideas, the suggestions together, and we can really, you know, push that message out bring the best practices. The most simple ones are the most effective ones that are out there. You talked about women returners. One of our partners is Credit Suisse. And I didn't know enough about working with women returning into the workforce. They have a great program called Real Returns. So I've immersed myself in trying to understand that better, but then to share what they're doing with other organizations to say, look, you don't have to do something massive. It would be great if you did, but you don't have to. But just taking simple, practical steps that say you're getting behind women who are returning into the workforce. You've got a program. People can apply for it. Um, you're supporting it in different offices around your network. That's fantastic. Um, bring those voices together. Let's share some of the ideas and best practices. A lot of what I do in our community is to put the spotlight on who's doing what well. You know, what are some of those great ideas where we can shout out about different organizations to say, look, they're really walking the talk when it comes to working with women returning to the workforce or getting black women into more senior positions or people working with disabilities. That is what I spend a lot of my time doing. And we now have great platforms where we push those messages out. Um, to share more about it. I also speak to the media a lot. I speak to government leaders a lot to say, you have an important role here to amplify this message as well. When you talk about, you know, making these programs available uh, across the organizations and also across the network as well. It's wonderful to hear you talk about taking this out into regional offices as well. And I, I wonder to what extent we are at risk of those in the headquarters benefit from network but actually one thing great things about course what you do is it's the coverage and it's the scale that really makes a difference as well it is and, and i've used my own organization as an example so this summer i was in washington dc with uh the, and i had the opportunity to meet gina ramundo who's the u.s commerce secretary and she convened a group of leaders something called the select usa global women in tech initiative and i joined a round table and um I was teased because I was the only bloke at the table. Um, but what I did bring into that discussion were examples, not just from our London group, but from our Netherlands group, our Nordics group, our Bay Area group, in terms of 
the practical things that they're doing to support women in tech. And, you know, the, the secretary came up to me afterwards and, you know, she, she was teasing me a little bit, but she said, we really value the practical things that you're doing globally and how you're sharing them across the network. And so that I think is really key because when I speak to people and often it's, it's white men saying to them, this is not rocket science. You know, you have your sales targets. And if you miss those sales targets, your board is going to beat up on you. But are they doing the same if you're not moving the needle on diversity and inclusion? Are you being challenged and taken to task? And, and most of them aren't, sadly. But for those who are starting to feel more of that pressure, and I'm glad they're feeling it, it's what can they do? How can they step up, whether it's just taking a simple program? But my message to them as well is, how do you lead by example? How do you demonstrate to your entire organization, whether it's 50 or 100 or 50,000, that you're truly behind this? Too many, and Julia, you and I have spoken about this, too many do a lot of talking, but they're not really walking the talk. But for those men and those white men who are really doing something specific, that's great. And that's what we need to shout about. And we talk a lot on the podcast about, you know, the importance of enlightened leadership. I mean, the yes. world is shifting constantly. And my personal opinion is that the, the laws and the rules and the training we've had about leadership in the past aren't always entirely applicable right now. You know, people are working in hybrid models. People are using technologies that are changing at such a pace yes. that actually we don't always have the privilege of, you know, following structures that might have applied 10, 15, even five years ago. And I think on that point, I mean, the world is changing and more companies, more corporates and more investors are being pressured by what we're calling ESG, environment, society and governance. And, you know, they're not going to get the investment. They're going to not going to get the 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 you know the support that they need unless they're demonstrating that they're really getting behind ESG, which a key component includes diversity and inclusion. So that macro environment, I think, is is a real plus. But now they have to sit down and say, how do we do this in a practical way? And how are they measuring the success? as they implement initiatives and programs. And that's where I sense things are still a little bit all over the place. And we've got to get a much better handle on the practical things that companies can do to move that needle step by step. I'm an advocate personally of targets and quotas. I know a lot of people don't like that. They don't think it's appropriate. But if you're not going to have targets and quotas, what are you going to do? And how does a board hold a CEO accountable if they're not changing the composition and makeup of their workforce to reflect more women, more people from the Black community, more people from the LGBTQ community, and people with disabilities. It's something that we have to demonstrate successfully. And you mentioned that a lot of people sitting in those powers of authority, we all know, are largely men. That now, yep. that, that is... We are seeing focus on that. We are seeing change on that. We're seeing awareness about that. And, and we could have a whole discussion about, is that changing fast enough? But I do want to hone in on one thing, which is really important about the power of allies yes. and particularly male allies. Now, clearly you are a massive male ally and an amazing role model in the industry. But I've also heard you talk to other men, encouraging them to step up and to take on that mantle, if you like. Love to hear your thoughts about why it matters and what advice do you give? Uh, 
it matters hugely, first of all. Um, I think th there are different ways of looking at this. I want to bring in a quick story, and then I want to talk about Mel Alishup. So we did a, during London Tech Week this summer, we did a, a DNI roundtable with Secretary of State Nadine Dorries. And we had lots of advocates around the table representing our various DNI working groups. And a word that came out of that session, which you know I'd heard about, but people kind of seized on it, was this word patriarchy. And it's to me, it's a very negative term, but there is a male, and let's be clear, a white male patriarchy that's out there in a number of organizations. And it is hard to change that. So you have to, coming on to this point about male allyship, reach out and break into those patriarchies and say to the CEO, the managing partner, whatever, you know, look, it feels comfortable. You recruit from the same bodies. You, you know, you, you're doing the same thing time and time again. What can you do that just takes a step away from that, that really signifies that you're serious about this? Um, and there's lots of male allies that are out there who've done this and are very comfortable doing this. You know, I remember a few years ago when I went to, it was a Transport for London event. There were 75 people. It was all about Black leaders in, in transport. I was the only white male in the room. Um, when we did our Global Tech Advocates Black Women in Tech event a couple of weeks ago at Google, there were 240 people there. I was the only white male in the room. And, and somebody came up to me and said, how do you feel? I said, well, if you asked me that question a few years ago, I said, I would have felt really strange. How do I feel now? I feel great because I feel very comfortable in this type of environment, but I didn't initially because it can be intimidating. Flavila, who set up our Black Women in Tech group, set it up because she was the only Black woman in a room of 75 men and said, this can't continue. So I say to male allies, you have to get out of your comfort zone. If you're running a big, your CEO of running a big company, you're out of your comfort zone a lot. You know, you're in new markets, you're launching new products. That's uncomfortable. Now think about it from a cultural leadership point of view. You know, go to a Black Women in Tech event, listen to the stories, you know, talk to people about what it feels like for you and what it could feel like for them. Take those steps and then maybe, you know, advise or mentor a young Black woman or a person who's got neurodiversity issues. Just put yourself in their world for 30 minutes or an hour. See what it's like and build that empathy for what it's like for somebody from a different diverse background. The first couple of times, it feels strange. Of course it does. But as you do this more and more and hear the issues and, you know, and people will feel comfortable going up to you, sharing their great ideas, because that's where you want them to come from, but they'll also complain and moan, which they should do about the frustrations that they've got. But put yourself into their shoes at an event, or whatever. And that's how you start this. It's those steps. And I think the male allies that you and I come across have done that and feel more and more comfortable. So now my role is I go to white men and say, come on, come with me, come to this event. It's only an hour. See what you can learn and experience. And I'd say 99 times out of 100, it works. Every now and then somebody just feels really intimidated and won't go get go back. But this is a big picture game. Let's go after the bulk of the, the, the white men who need to make that change. And I think those are the practical things that can be done. 
And of course, every leader knows you have to just ultimately get comfortable with the uncomfortable. This is what we do all day. This is what we do every single day. So, so actually, if we are overly comfortable, then it, then take the step. And I love that it is just simply, simply a single step that will will will, 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 will take you into a different world, but an important world. Yeah. And the importance of listening. And, and really absorbing as opposed to imposing or appropriating. That's, the, that's another kind of behavior that I've seen a little bit of, which is people you know, assuming that those communities want to be spoken to in a way that other communities may want to engage. And of course, the, the use of the expression bane uh, is, is, yeah. uh, is outdated. And, you know, oftentimes, you know, Flavila or Suki or whoever from these groups will invite me to come and speak. And sometimes I'll say, look, I'm just here to listen. You know, if you want me to say a couple words at the end, I'm happy to do so. But I'm equally happy just networking with the folks who are there and you know, feeling like they can come up to me in a safe space and share what's on their mind. If it's a great idea or frustration, that's what you, you learn over time what's appropriate. And you can't do that from day one. You'll make mistakes and be ready. You're going to make, you're going to put your foot in your mouth. And I've done it a couple of times myself, but, you know, poke fun at yourself and then move, you know, apologize if you need to, and then move on and say, I'm learning on this journey with everybody else. But if we don't do this in a collaborative and integrated way, it ain't going to happen. And it is a journey. It really is a journey. There's not a perfect state. We know what the future state will benefit Certainly. And, you know, the every single step along the way is progress, which is phenomenal. Um, Ross, it's been a joy to have some of your time. I know how busy you are. I wonder if I could ask you sort of a parting question, sure. if I may, which is a question I ask every single guest, which is my deep seated concern that as we go through very interesting socioeconomic times. Yes. Um, I'm concerned that actually the conversation about diversity, equity, inclusion may well fall down the board agenda. And I would love to hear your compelling reasons why it must remain high. Yeah, funny enough, I, I actually don't think it will. In fact, I actually think it's going to stay at or near the top. And, and the reason for that is every organization I speak to, startup, scale up, corporate, the number one issue that they face is around talent. You know, even in our uncertain economic times in the UK today, there was just a, a report I read recently, there's 1.2 million job vacancies. In the tech sector in the UK, there's over 100,000 tech vacancies. So there is a hunger for talent and there's an, a hunger for diverse talent. And more and more people are saying diverse talent is what we need to do to make sure that we become a more robust, dynamic organization. Um, so because that talent equation is so top of mind for boards, for CEOs, for founders and entrepreneurs, I'm optimistic that the DNI agenda is going to stay, if not at the top, very near the top going forward, because we have to solve for the talent issues that are out there. That's not going away over the coming months and years. That's going to be with us for a very long time. So I think it will be top of mind for many people. I'm an optimist, as you can tell, but it'll be at the top. Russell, it's always a privilege to spend time with you. It's always very inspiring. And I know that we could talk for hours about this, but your passion for the DE&I conversation shines through in every single word and every single action. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Julia. Great to be with you on such a critical topic. Thank you.
What a discussion. It was wonderful to hear Russ's thoughts, insights and optimism, and it really gave me some ideas to take into the second interview in this special technology episode. So I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sue Black. She is a multi-award winning computer scientist. She is a technology evangelist and a digital skills expert. She is a professor of computer science and the technology evangelist in the Department of Computer Science at Durham University. But more than that, she is a UK government advisor not surprisingly a thought leader, trustee at Comic Relief, a social entrepreneur, a writer and a public speaker. Sue set up the UK's first online network for women in technology for the British Computer Society called BSC Women back in 1998. And you may also know her because she led the campaign to save Bletchley Park, home of the World War II codebreakers. Sue has championed women in tech for more than two decades, founding the Tech Mums Social Enterprise in 2013 and the pioneering Tech Up Women, retraining underserved women in tech into their careers back in 2019. It's not surprising that Professor Sue Black was awarded an OBE for services to technology in the 2016 Queen's New Year's Honours List, and she's here today. So Sue, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Julia. It's such a pleasure to be here. So I'm so excited to have you on the show because every time I see you, I've got a million and one questions for you. So now I get to ask you. Well, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to start off with the first thing. You know, I, I set yeah. up this incredible broad spectrum of things that you're doing at the moment and things you're focused on. What are you particularly focused on in 2022? Um, well, I guess kind of continuing in the, in the same theme of uh, what's become my career um, around technology, I guess evangelism. I mean, that is part of my title at Durham and uh, really helping people to understand how, you know, like, like I'm sure as, as you believe too, you know, diversity and inclusion is so important. And, you know, if we want to, in the tech world, create products and services that are fit for purpose for everybody, we need the teams building them to be diverse and inclusive. And so I guess I've been working around that area for, like you're saying, the last 20 years, but it's been very interesting to see, you know, after, over the last few years, how it's really come to the fore and how businesses are really starting at least to take it seriously. Um, so most things I do kind of come under that umbrella. So you mentioned Tech Up Women, so focusing on uh, Tech Up Women. So that's retraining women, particularly from underserved backgrounds into tech careers. So our, our um, first Tech Up Women cohort, we managed to get, I think 54% women of color, 46% uh, women with disabilities, 40% women parents, I think something like 28% LGBTQ uh, plus. And so we really focused on uh, supporting and encouraging women from diverse backgrounds uh, to come together on the program. And not just as the students, but also the women that were coming in to teach, uh, to support and to give sort of inspiring speeches and, and um, kind of be part of the, the program all the way through, like um, Donna Herdsman, who I think has been on your show uh, before, you know, so, so many amazing women out there. So that's one thing. Also, Tech Mums, you mentioned, so that's a social enterprise I set up in, I think, 2012, so 10 years ago already. Um, we just kind of started that again uh, after the pandemic because it's, it's, we're working at the level of mums that aren't used to using computers even. So, you know, to help them realize the benefits, the opportunities there are in technology, to being online, to understanding the online world in terms of keeping their families safe, but also, you know, what jobs are out there. Um, and so working on 
supporting our new CEO, Bria Usman, who's running uh, Tech Mums now for us. And our, our first cohort graduated in Northumberland um, recently, went up for the graduation, which is always amazing, seeing these mums who've really kind of blossomed really through the programme and, and much more tech savvy now. And then also I'm leading on diversity and inclusion for a project called the Transfire Project, which is working to transform the foundation industries. So, so that's been interesting because I didn't know what the foundation industries were 18 months ago. And so, you know, like industries like um, glass, ceramics, metals, cement. And so that's been a, a steep but really interesting learning curve for me, learning all about the foundation industries and now working hard with um, my team at Durham to, to really do something kind of game-changing across the foundation industries around diversity and inclusion. And we've just really started working together as a team. So that's kind of, that's the sort of exciting thing to come. I don't quite know what we're going to be doing yet. Well, we talk yeah. about ESG, we talk about environmental social governance, we talk about sustainability pathways. And of course, the importance of diversity, equity, inclusion in these foundation skills and careers it's going to, to drive us through a pathway of innovation to come out with smarter methods of production, smarter ways in which to build, if you want to be on a, on a very basic level, which is incredibly important. Yeah. To, and to know that your work in diversity and inclusion is really a sort of foundational there is, is so important, forgive the pun, but it's so important. <laughs> One of the things that comes up a lot and where I feel we've made quite a lot of progress, but I wonder, I'm, I'm quite curious about this, yeah. is around the importance of female returners to the workplace. And yeah. particularly, and I think obviously your work with tech mums. And I'm just wondering sort of your observations about how that is changing, obviously from a lived experience. And I don't know whether this is a bit of a stretch too far, but, but I'm also really fascinated by the women of Bletchley Park. Tell us a bit more about that. I first went to Bletchley Park in 2003, um, I was there for a British Computer Society meeting and so I went to the meeting and then I walked around and bumped into these guys who were rebuilding Alan Turing's bomb machine because all the machines that had been used to industrialise the code breaking process during World War II had all been destroyed and all the plans were destroyed pretty much as well. So no one really knew what happened and of course it was all kept secret and everyone that worked there, those 10,000 people, all signed the Official Secrets Act and so, you know, but nothing leaked out at all hardly for such a long time. And so after, after um, meeting these guys and talking to them about what they were doing, they said, why are you here? So I said, oh, I'm representing this group of women in uh, computing. And they said, well, did you know that um, more than half the people that worked here were women? And I was like, no, because I'd walked around the museum and there wasn't much at all about women. And it just, I hadn't really thought about it. So I said, how many people worked here? And he said, more than 10,000. So that day I found out that about 8,000 women worked at Bletchley Park. So I was blown away because there wasn't much representation of that at Bletchley or when I looked online there either. And so I managed to get some funding to record an oral history of the women that worked there. And then it was at the launch of that project that um, uh, I found out the Bletchley Park might have to close because they were having financial difficulties. So that was in 2008, I think. Um, and then I started a campaign to, to save Bletchley Park after that. So it's kind of the women that, that drew me into uh, the history of Bletchley Park. Um, but then found out, you know, that um, they needed help. I think, you know, like over the years that I met loads of women veterans who are all just what you'd want them to be, you know, like super smart, still in their like 80s and 90s, usually really good, dry sense of humour, happy mm -hmm. to come. Or some, some don't want to talk about or didn't want to talk about anything that happened to Bletchley Park at all because they said 
I signed the initial sequence out. I'm never going to talk about it. So that's understandable. And then others that, you know, if you had a chat with them, particularly over a glass of wine or something, they'd come out with these little kind of anecdotes of things that they'd done. And um, once I was on the table for dinner with um, some of the women veterans and I said, have you got any stories about, you know, like what you did socially? And, and one of the ladies said to the other lady, oh, do you remember that time we nicked a vicar's bicycle to go to a dance? And I, I do, you know, I just thought, yeah, they were like 18, 18, 19, 20. First time they'd left home, 8,000 women, you know, like all together, not being able to talk about what they did at work um, or even talk to each other at work really about what they were doing. But so then they sort of like socialized to the max and kind of got up to all sorts of hijinks, I suppose you'd call it. It reminds me a bit of St. Trinian's, you know, that kind of, uh, I don't know. But um, yeah, just absolute characters and, and absolutely wonderful women. And it's interesting hearing you talk about, you know, the dynamics of age. One of the things that industry talks a lot about at the moment is the importance of returners, so in, yeah. particularly in the, in the female career pathway, if we look at it that way. Thinking about your work with tech bums, I'd love to hear more about how you got into that as well and also what you think about in terms of returners programmes. I think it's a good idea to have returners programmes. I think, you know, thinking back to my mum's generation, women had to leave work when they got married or had a baby and that was it. That was the end of their careers. Um, so we definitely moved on from there, but um, we're not where we should be, I don't think. And, you know, I set up tech mums really because I wanted everyone to understand the benefits of just even basic digital skills. But my idea of digital skills is not maybe what most people think of as digital skills. So with Tech Moms, like 10 years ago, I put together a programme which was like app design, web design, social media, how to stay safe online, a bit of coding in Python. And to me, that wasn't to teach mums all of that stuff. It's to show them they can do it. You know, they can do those things. They're, they're not kind of something that only an elite group of people can do. There's something that everyone to do, can do to a certain extent. And I think understanding that is very empowering. And so, you know, the Tech Mums programme now, I think is 10 or 12 weeks, uh, kind of two hours a week. But back then it was just five, two hour modules that I put together. Um, and even then from mums going through, you know, that kind of content, they've kind of blossomed as they went through the programme. It was just amazing to see you know, mums, we started off in Tower Hamlets in a, a, a school with, I think, something like 60% or 80% of kids on free school meals. So mums coming in, you know, not quite knowing what to expect. And just to see them then designing their own apps and then finding out that actually, oh, they didn't know, but that app, you know, that idea they had, oh, someone else has done that already. And they probably made like a million pounds, you know, from running the company that they do. So, you know, like helping them to see that the sort of ideas they were having were really good ideas and that they could develop their own apps you know they they were able to come up with great ideas that were really helpful through to then helping them set up their own websites and uh, getting them doing a bit of coding you know and they sort of come into the coding class and they're like oh dear you know like really scared I don't know you know just worried about looking stupid I think and so I tried to break it down to make it as easy as possible and just getting them to run like a one-line python program and then get them to edit it and see oh, they, they can now like run a program, they can edit it to print out, I don't know, Hello Sue or something instead of Hello World. And then realizing they can do that and then, you know, kind of building it up from there. So I think there are lots of things around technology that particularly women, I guess any kind of underserved communities, you can help people feel very empowered quite quickly if you teach things in the right way. But I think a lot of the time things are not taught in that way. They're kind of taught in the traditional 1940s or whatever it is. The school teacher knows everything and has to impart their knowledge and 
you know, if you're a student, you're like an empty vessel. I was really trying to, I guess, turn that on its head and, and empower mums. We've had some great results of that. So that's Tech Mums that's been running for 10 years now. And so then some of our Tech Mums have then gone on to our Tech Up Women programme, which has been really great for me to see that. So several of our Tech Mums, I think from Newcastle and Leeds, um, went through the, uh, our first uh, Tech Up Women programme. And so the whole idea with Tech Up Women is I've heard from people working in the tech industry, uh, in HR, CEOs, CTOs, that they, you know, they advertise their jobs and no women apply or like 2% of women apply and they don't get through the interview process or blah, blah, blah. I've heard that for like years and years. And it's always kind of annoyed me, like at the back of my head, like there must be another way to, to do something about this. Um, because there's loads of women with lots of potential. So, you know, it doesn't kind of make sense to me. And then at the same time, I've met so many women, and again, kind of from underserved backgrounds in all sorts of ways, who probably want to work in tech, but don't quite know how to get into tech. If you do a web search, it's not very clear what you need to do to work as a software engineer, for example. I mean, these days we've got boot camps and stuff, so, you know, things are changing a bit. But only four years ago in um, 2018, there wasn't really that much around, and particularly focused on women, there wasn't. And so uh, this funding became available from Institute of Coding. And uh, I went to, to a meeting where they were talking about the funding. And I just thought, oh, here's an opportunity for me to really do something. Because what they wanted was programs to kind of like get more diversity and inclusion in, in tech careers. So I thought, well, you know, why don't we kind of solve A and B? So solve this issue of there's loads of women wanting to work in tech, loads of companies wanting to employ women in tech. Why don't we create a program that works with industry partners, finds out what it is they want people to do, and then create a program that starts from kind of computer science 101 and retrains women directly into those careers. And so that's basically what we did. We came up with um, a program. We asked the industry partners, what are the, like, the top five job roles that you're trying to employ people, women into? And the top four uh, for our first run through were software engineer, data scientist, agile project manager, and business analyst. So we created a program which started with everyone together and then kind of gradually went into four streams of those four job roles. And then the industry partners all uh, interviewed the women at the end of the program. And we finished the first run through just before lockdown. So it wasn't very good timing, um, but more than 50% um, are now in jobs in tech and um, winning awards, which is amazing to see, you know, when you see people kind of like go through that transition, I guess, and, you know, are doing amazing things, uh, which is really wonderful. One of the things we really focused on was making sure that the people teaching on the programme uh, were representative of the cohort going through. So, you know, because we had more than 50% women of colour, we aim to have, and I think we did have more than 50% women of colour, teaching and you know like talking to the women or as mentors or as kind of like keynote speakers on the program we had four residential weekends to get everyone together so it's basically an online course but we wanted to get everyone kind of bonding with each other into sort of buddy support networks everyone had a mentor because I know that any online program I've ever started I don't think I've finished any of them to be honest so it's quite hard to kind of keep yourself you know on track through so made sure that there's lots of support for everyone so you know like really help build kind of confidence with technology and just really get everyone to have fun as well at the same time I think you know having fun is really important and it sounds like not very business-like but I just think if everyone's having fun when they're doing stuff they carry on doing it you know so both in the workplace and you know when you're studying I think if you can make it fun then why not so you know we aim to do that as well isn't it funny that the fun thing is the thing we sort of slightly apologise for? Because yeah. in terms of all of that, yeah. it's the, the alignment with business need. 
It is understanding frameworks that talent needs in order to become educated. Yeah. But also recognizing that there's a really important piece in the middle, which is that the role models, the allies and the teachers are reflective of the talent that's being taught. Yeah. So then therefore you change the, the status dynamic in so many ways. But but the whole point about the enjoyment of learning, you know, I'm a stand-up comedian, a recovery yeah. stand-up comedian, as I describe myself these days. And, and one of the reasons why I love it and why I think it's so important is because it drives energy positive energy into the workplace and into uh into events and also into teaching and learning that people yeah. go I'm loving this I'm enjoying it what are the areas we're overlooking where are the communities that we're missing particularly in the conversation about social inclusion you know so being at Durham University and you know we're really keen particularly with our new vice chancellor on widening participation and you know I mean that's something that I've always been I'm one of those people that you know left school at 16 and came back in at, at 26 um, so I know what that's like to a certain extent uh, into education. But so, you know, Durham itself is is very um, rich or wealthy kind of as a city. But on the, on the outskirts of uh, Durham City, there's lots of deprivation because, you know, of all the, the mines being shut down in the 80s. You know, there's lots of villages where not many people have got jobs. You know, there's there's not a lot going on. And, you know, so I'm kind of talking to people at Durham. Um, about that as part of what do we do in terms of widening participation so I think you know I mean my, my sort of I guess my first focus has been on women um, and then I've sort of I guess over time really thought hard about you know I guess race uh, and um, disability LGBTQ um, plus um, but then kind of social class as well and kind of access to education and access to role models and that kind of thing. And I think, you know, if people aren't online and don't know, don't feel confident online, don't know what's out there online, and also haven't got much money uh, and haven't got people around them that, that are, are going out to work and earning lots of money, you know, that's that's a difficult situation to be in. And so I'm kind of sort of thinking about with other people, not just me, what can we do at Durham to, to target those kind of like underserved populations in those villages um, and, and really try and make a difference. So that's one thing that's kind of on my mind that I really want to do and focus on next. And, and everybody's talking about social inclusion, but actually it's a case of going social inclusion isn't just the social perimeters of what you see under your nose. It's actually you need to need to put the, the work in and go go further. It's fascinating. Well, I would love to have you back on to talk about how um, <laughs> How, how that's been going it's really important because yeah. as, as you know on the podcast we like to kind of call out areas where we need to be very attentive to and because we, we believe the skills are going to be found I mean I talk a lot in the industry about my deep-seated concern that we don't have the tech skills we need today yeah. let alone tomorrow yeah absolutely and what we're saying is the answer is is you know right literally uh, uh under our noses and beyond we just have to think differently I wonder if I could just kind of change the conversation to slightly different direction which is yeah. And again, it's something that does come up quite a lot. There have been various surveys and various conversations about, um, well, I'm just going to call it the toxic culture of tech. Cultures of, you know, mostly male-driven, male ego, testosterone-heavy <laughs> kind of organisations. I would love to get your thoughts on, um, is, is that your experience? And actually, as we bring women into that, how do we make sure the women are protected, but also want to stay and, and have a role to play in changing that culture? I love your thoughts on that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, so I think it's not just tech. I mean, I think a lot of the time when we get 
groups of people that are all very similar we get groupthink, you know and and kind of like group behavior which ends up being kind of skewed towards something that's not that great um so in terms of the sort of bro culture you know i think if that that started off for various reasons in probably in, because those guys were I don't know it's come from like I guess California and middle class white American males being the ones going into tech at a certain point you know which has not been the case all along because just look at Steve Shirley Dame Stephanie Shirley and F International and some amazing examples of um kind of the opposite in a way um so I think you know like that all male kind of young privileged male culture has ended up sort of pervading tech and how tech's seen from the outside. Like I was saying earlier, we really need to think hard about if we want to create products and services, which is basically what we do in tech, that are fit for purpose for lots of people around the world. They'll be from all different sorts of backgrounds, all different sorts of cultures. And so if we've only got those kind of people working in the companies, what they're producing will not be fit for purpose. And so I believe as we of like in general understand more and more about the importance of diversity and inclusion and people feeling included at work and having diverse teams um, in all different sorts of ways then the companies that stay like that their products and services aren't going to be as good so basically at some point they're the ones that are going to be going out of business if you think about companies that have not succeeded uh, that have kind of gone bust recently if you have a look at their boards quite often they're all white middle-class males, probably in their 60s or, you know, a massive majority. And I think, you know, if we've got that kind of groupthink within co companies, particularly at a higher level, those companies aren't gonna be fit for purpose themselves uh, in time. And it's gonna be the companies that now really take diversity and inclusion very seriously, kind of to their core and think hard about their culture, which means the person at the top supporting and talking about their support for the culture but also them encouraging kind of projects and ideas from a grassroots level to kind of be taken seriously and taken on board um, from, you know, with people from diverse backgrounds. I think those companies that are really kind of allowing their employees to blossom, so I'm saying blossom again, but allowing their employees to blossom and feel because they feel included and supported and valued at work, then to come up with these amazing ideas, which the culture is is really encouraging those are the companies that are going to be successful in 10 15 years time i think i'm quite deeply concerned that as we navigate really quite tough times the diversity equity and inclusion debate or importance could drop down the corporate agenda a bit and i would love to hear your compelling reasons why it must remain high diversity and inclusion is a strength for organizations and I think the organizations that really take it seriously are going to be the ones that are successful in two years time five years time ten years time because we're operating in a global marketplace and so if you have employees that are empowered that come from diverse backgrounds that feel included that are empowered to talk about their ideas to each other about how to make products and services better within a company if you've got great support from the CEO at the top then those are the types of companies in all sorts of areas that are going to be the most successful because they're really harnessing the benefits of inclusion uh, and diversity rather than seeing it as a tick box exercise. I cannot think of a better way to finish the show, really. Professor Sue Black, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. 
And as always to all our listeners, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you've enjoyed this discussion as much as I have. Please tune in again for another episode very soon. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by Roshan Roberts on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com. And that's diversity with a C and not an S. Whilst you are there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. All our episodes are available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app. If you enjoy Diversity Podcast, remember to share on social media and give us a rating or review. It really helps to promote the show to a wider audience. And finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.